Today on Canadian Tech Podcast, we are speaking with Danish Youssef, founder of Zinsurance. Learn what it's like to build a software company in a highly regulated, conservative industry and what it means to raise funding for your startup. I wanted to start off with um, your inspiration for founding Zensurance. Uh, you know, general liability insurance. Uh, you know, this sort of product has been around for a really, really long time. Um, from what, actually, I should start off and say I'm a I'm a customer. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Thank so, you. Just you know, before anybody comes back and is like, "Wow, this guy knows a lot." I know a little bit only because I'm actually a customer uh, through my small business. So thanks for making that process fairly easy. That was great. Um, so that'll take me, I guess, to my first question of what was the uh, the founding inspiration for for creating Zensurance? Sure, um, I was a consultant in a prior life. And I did a lot of work with uh, various financial institutions, banks, insurance companies, etc. And there's always that feeling that the, the forgotten middle. Um, there's a lot of focus on consumers and a lot of focus on enterprise, but small business was generally too challenging to tackle because they're so varied, their needs are different, they're spread all over the place, it's hard to get them in the masses. Uh, and it's, um, it's expensive to surf. And my thought was, these people, business owners, really need that advice and support, uh, and they're a forgotten segment. I, I, and, I, and I figured with my technology background, I, there's a way to address this need in a scalable manner. So I quit my job, this was late 2015, and I'd already started tinkering with this. And I, I quit my job at the end of 2015, I got married that same uh, holiday break, and I came back fresh on uh, the leap day, Feb 29. 2016 as my first full-time day thinking I want to help solve the problem for these small business owners of which I had just become one. Okay. Where did that insight come from? I know you've got a history uh, of working at uh, McKinsey and I think IBM. Uh, you went to Harvard right. Business School. Was it was it your interactions with small and medium-sized businesses at one of those uh, those companies? Most of it came from interacting with large insurance companies. Okay. And when I sat in the management meetings, the board meetings, the conversation was almost always focused on home and auto insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, highly regulated, a lot of claims, big markets. So the discussions were always there. But when I peeled apart the financials, I looked at the small business segment. I said, this could be very profitable, but it's ignored. It's ignored on the, the delivery side as well as the supply side. So I said, this is an ignoring segment. Uh, I think I can solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Within my time at McKinsey, I had an internal budget to create prototypes to try and pitch the solution to clients of McKinsey's. Okay. And in working with that internal budget and doing surveys and talking to people, I said, this is a real opportunity that I think I would be more excited about doing outside rather than inside. And, and that triggered the exit. Cool. Okay. Well, good for you. I, a lot of the best business ideas come from you know, identifying this exact opportunity, you know, it's not being served. Uh, you know, I, I went through this process late summer 2020 of, of signing on a client who required me to have a couple million dollars in general liability insurance, business insurance. And, uh, and 
I had heard about Zensurance before, probably through Mobile Syrup or uh, Beta Kit or something like that. Uh, but I also went through, you know, a, a lot of local business suppliers, business insurance suppliers to see, you know, given the fact that I probably can't go to the office <laughs> and, and I definitely don't want to go right now, even if I could, um, you know, who's going to give me uh, the easiest process and and ideally a mostly digital process. And so, uh, you know, Zensurance obviously came up in my searches and, uh, and you know, here we are as... Uh, Comcom, my business being a um, a business insurance client, and and you know me going through this exact thing of like who do I get business insurance from? What are the rates? What's going to get covered? Uh, and and you know at the end of the day, I think we'll we'll discover this. Uh, you know the end result is Zinsurance's process was the easiest. I didn't have to fill out a PDF and send it back which somebody asked me to do i'm like i'm not doing yeah. this like what are you i'm not filling out a pdf and sending it back to you this is ridiculous um right you know on on kind of that that vein of you know having gone through this process i used to sell life critical illness and disability insurance products uh so i know a little bit about how those are underwritten you know there's actuaries working in the background to figure out all the risk and therefore how much to charge and all that uh fun stuff or you know, how much they need to cover to cover their butts uh, uh should a claim come through so zensurance uh you know takes an algorithm-based approach to assessing business insurance can you explain why that's novel compared to other business insurance providers? It's a great question, and it's uh, quite telling that you even have to ask that. Um, <laughs> you'd expect <laughs> that at this time it'd be machines doing it, much like you buy travel, you buy anything. There's there's machines behind it, but almost every policy, business insurance policy in Canada, is priced by hand. So you'd mentioned you had to fill in a PDF. So you fill in the PDF, you send email it to your broker. That broker then emails it to multiple insurance companies. Mm -hmm. At those insurance companies, you'll have multiple people reading that PDF and then typing it into an, either an Excel sheet or something else, fiddling with knobs and tubes and ups and downs, and then spitting out another PDF summarizing the price and sending it back to you. Um, that's how 99.9% .9 of commercial insurance policies are sold in Canada, and in fact, many parts of the world. For us, we think, that's crazy. It's 2021. Why? I, I think machines will do a far better job of that. So uh, I describe it as novel, but it's only novel in insurance. It's not novel uh, across other industries where you go to our website, it's an adaptive set of questions. So we'll, depending on the answer to the previous questions, we'll ask you an additional set of questions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we looked at it, we have about 40,000 different questions we could ask you just given the complexity of, uh, of what a business could be doing. Wow. and it spits out a price. We have a bunch of different prices in the back. We work with 50 different insurance companies. Uh, we, we even have in-house brands where we've specifically tailored it to gaps in the market. Most, most of the time, it'll be a, a mid-sized business insurance policy that is just tweaked to make it work for small businesses. We've built our own in-house policies that are specifically built to service one-person shops or, or five-person shops. And so not only is the process better, the product is more tailored, and because it's more tailored, we think the price is more competitive um, because we've taken the stuff you, we don't think you need, added the stuff you probably do need, and then, and then made it available to you. Yeah, I, I definitely had a hard time 
figuring out like where do I put in a blockchain community management consulting firm? practically a brand new type of company that's you know probably four years old so and and in canada maybe even less so yeah uh, the forty thousand questions that's just an impressive number you know i I don't know how many of those are variants on other questions and you know just tailored very very specifically to like a restaurant a a small restaurant or a food truck which is a fairly new uh, uh business model um or you know this permanent i run my business out of my home i might have contractors around the world but uh uh you know everything's based in canada but kind of not really like that there's all sorts of yes. different situations now that you can run into in 2021 especially that you just couldn't do or or wouldn't run into in 2015 um that uh yeah it's 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 great that you know a canadian company has taken this on and and it was novel at least at the time maybe it still is um so you know kudos to you um I know enough <laughs> to know that there is uh, often rightfully so not specifically in your industry but just in general uh, a lot of criticism directed at algorithms um, because of bias introduced via data sources uh, the developers of those algorithms um, uh, other things so what kinds of things has Zensurance done or are you doing uh, in order to avoid that sort of bias from creeping in um, and sure. an, an analogy not you know directly specifically applied to the insurance would be like you know a lot of databases for training facial recognition learning models are predominantly white people um sure. you know and that's obviously a problem it's creeped up yeah. in the past so again you know we're talking about insurance here but um you know what what sort of yes. things does insurance do to avoid that kind of bias from from coming in sure no it's a very important question um, I think there's a lot of biases even without machines being involved. Mm-hmm. And, and so just by introducing a machine, you, what, what's, uh, what you have to think about is the intentional and the unintentional biases. And you solve problems through machines as well. For example, you ask uh, many brokers out there that deal with personal insurance. We, we don't, but if, you're a, if you do car insurance, depending on the name of the city that the, the application is coming from, they may not want to write the business. Uh, And although there's legal requirements for them to have to, they might take longer to do it. They might send a paper application rather than uh, a more simple solution. So biases exist today in the manual process. Um, So recognizing that uh, we, in in our technology solution, I think more of those biases end up coming when you have AI and the machine is deciding on its own, like that image processing Um, example you gave, the Mm -hmm. pictures were given, they happened to be a skewed set, and then the machine just inferred a bunch of things from it. We're not yet at the point of releasing into the live our AI models. We have them in the back end, they're learning, they're training, but we haven't released them uh, in the wild. However, what we have done, even to begin with, is um, our system has the two parts. One's where the data is, and one is uh, the AI and the algorithms that are using the data. We don't transmit any personally identifiable information from one side to the other. So name, email address, anything else like that is not given to the algorithm. It's just cool. the description of the business. The address is there because the address does impact rating. Uh, sure. if, you're, if, you're, if you live near a hydrant 
less risky than if you don't live near a hydrant. So there's reasons yeah. why the address is needed. But there are some things that we've from now separated. And when we get to the machine learning side being more live, we'll have to definitely keep an eye on making sure we don't introduce biases, but in fact, reduce the biases that already exist in the manual world. Yeah, like, sadly, you know, there are, there are places where your name alone <laughs> might might set yeah. off some 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 alarm bells, or my last name at the very least might set off some uh, some bias, you know, uh, bells sure. or you know, in somebody's head. So um, I totally get, you know, the hydrant. You know, that's just important for for fire at the very least. And uh, uh, but I guess if you're then the parameters that you're using to assess that data obviously come into play. Right. No, it's true if you use third-party data uh, and, and there's a bias in that data that, that could impact uh, your decision. If your algorithms are designed such that it says if city equals X charge 30% more, that's mm -hmm. an intentional bias. I think that that's much easier to catch. It's the unintentional biases that are harder to catch that you have to plan for ahead of time to make sure you're not unintentionally doing things that you don't want to. Cool. That makes sense. How satisfied are you so far with uh, with how far the insurance has come uh, since its founding? Like, are you happy with the results and the growth so far? Are you, you know, do, do you wish you were bigger or, or maybe even smaller because obviously different problems can come with scale too? Right. I'm really excited about where we've got to. Um, I never thought it would take this long. We've been around about five years. And if someone told me that would it take it would take five years to get to where we are today I, I may never have started uh, the industry it, it's just so hard to make um, to make change in such an old established industry and so many conversations every every conversation takes a couple of months to turn around so it's been five years we we hit some major milestones this quarter in terms of people hired um, customers written policies issued massive milestones this quarter and every month has been better than the prior month and post covid the growth has skyrocketed both in terms of headcount insurance mm -hmm. companies onboarded products offered dollars of revenue everything has set new records for us so i'm i'm really excited about where we are and even more excited about where i think we'll be in two years from now just given we're now finally hitting that stride where we have so many insurance companies on the platform we've automated many of the steps that it's the time now in a couple of months to really pour gasoline on the fire and take this growth forward. That's exactly where I wanted to, to head next. Like what is next? Maybe without giving any potential uh, uh, competitors too much of an advantage, what's sure. next for the insurance? Like where do you want to be in two years? Our core focus right now is small business insurance and we want to really own that space. Uh, there will always be room for uh, multiple competitors. There's always going to be room for people to do it the traditional way because customers want a different types of experiences. So it's never it's not a one it's not a one size fit all. It's not a winner take all market here. There's lots of room for lots of people. But we want to own that small commercial small business space. My my sign that we are uh, well along our way on that journey is every couple of weeks we get an email from another insurance broker saying I have this customer they've mentioned your name to us we know that you're gonna win the business so here you go take it we know you're better you're faster you're cheaper everything is easier so 
here you go. And that happens every week or two. And I take that as a positive sign. We thank them. We're not, we're not rubbing it in their face. We thank them. Some, in some cases, we have reciprocal, reciprocal, reciprocal arrangements. Mm-hmm. But that's a sign for me that, hey, we are really owning this space. So that, that's level one for us. Level two, it depends. And this is next year onwards. It depends on where we see the most opportunity. Many people ask if they can license our software. Some people license if they can, uh, ask if they can license the insurance products that we have. Some people ask if we want to go into a different geography or if we want to get into home and auto insurance or if we want to refer life insurance. Lots of options are out there. We, we do that evaluation every six months to see what's next for us. So we'll tackle some of those, uh, but we won't know which ones until later in the year when we run our biannual analysis as to what's next. Cool. That sounds really interesting. If I could plug something for you that's completely self-interested, <laughs> yeah, sure. motorcycle insurance, and uh, I guess it would be plane insurance. I don't have a plane mm-hmm. yet. I do want to be a pilot, uh, get okay. my private pilot license, hopefully have a little six-seater to myself know, sometime in the next six years or so if wow. things, you know, if, if my own personal, you know, aspirations work out, obviously. So if you could get all that sorted out by 2025, 2026, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll have a plane of my own by then. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, why not? Um, as Here's another highly regulated industry, uh, you know, flights or, uh, uh, air, or airlines and, and planes and everything else that goes along with that. Um, as a Canadian company, uh, I w- was curious about what benefits you feel like this insurance has had operating in Canada, maybe not in contrast to the U.S. because things are relatively similar, but maybe in contrast to you know, a, a developing nation or maybe even somewhere in Europe. Uh, and conversely, uh, is there anything that's holding Zensurance back being a, a Canadian business? So I, I grew up in Toronto, so it was natural for me to continue living here to, to uh, start the company. Uh, a big benefit uh, was my network, frankly. I, it, 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 that was the big reason for me starting the company here was my network was here. I had investor friends, I had insurance company networks, so I could uh, get the company going. There was another big aspect of uh, talent availability. It's it's changed during COVID, but there's a lot of smart people that were looking for local jobs. And we, we did not have a hard time in the early days attracting and retaining fantastic talent. Yeah. Huge benefits. We're based in downtown Toronto, and this is where everybody wanted to be. We had some good name investors. We had a lot of partners, a lot of growth. So the talent side was uh, was a huge benefit of being in Toronto specifically. Um, the challenge I found with Canada, I can't speak to many other countries. Uh, I have lived in the U.S., so I have some experience back and forth. I found that our insurance partners here were more conservative mm-hmm. than the insurance partners that my peer companies in the U.S. were dealing with. They were more willing to take risks in the U.S., um, more more open to trying new things. And in fact, our big investor is a U.S.-based insurance company. Hmm. Um, and we didn't get that same level of support from local insurance companies. Even though we spoke to many of them, the feeling was we don't know whether online is, is, uh, is the right thing yet. We're, we're willing to support you in some ways, but not willing to write big checks. Right. So I think that, that was quite different. Uh, uh, and also on the consumer side, 
it does feel like consumers in the U.S., particularly in the Valley and, and California and New York, are more open to doing new things than people here. It, it took longer for us to get established here than, again, my peer companies in the U.S. that were doing very similar things. They, they were able to scale much faster. I, I, and might be something to do with me versus the, the founder of those other companies as well. That, that's absolutely a possibility. Uh, my, my biased view is, hey, there's something in the market that people are a little bit more conservative here. Sure. I, I, I think that's generally fair to say. Whether it's good or bad, you know, you, you can probably yeah. debate that until the cows come home. But, um, yeah, I, I think especially if you live in the Silicon Valley area, San Jose, Cupertino, San Francisco, <laughs> you you might not enjoy it, but you're rather used to change. And you've got all yes. sorts of people around you who are constantly introducing you to new things, depending on the circles you run in. Um, on, on the other hand, you might be one of these people who has been you know effectively priced out of your home, um, right. especially if you're renting. And obviously, you might be far more adverse to change. Uh, right. uh, as a result, because you know you see it's had a negative impact on your life, but um, you know uh, on the other hand, technology can always be good for, or used for good or for bad, and so right. you know I, I would say largely uh, I can't off the top of my head I can't see any downsides. I would say this has been one that's been dramatically for the good. You're you're employing a lot of people. I guess you're fighting now Google, Facebook, Microsoft more so than you were five years ago for talent. Um, yes. in southwestern Ontario in general, not just in Toronto, um, which I guess leads me to to my next question. Like, you've grown exponentially. Uh, you know, I think you're almost triple the headcount of what you were this time last year, roughly. Has all of that, and I'm not trying to demonize you in any way, you know, regardless of the answer to this, I'm just curious. Um, has all of that growth been in Canada? Has it all been in Ontario, or have you maybe because of this increased competition, you've had to start to look elsewhere for some of that talent. So growth in headcount you're talking about? Yes, yeah, the individuals yeah. You, you guys fired. Pre-COVID, all of our employees were around Toronto, commutable distance from the office because we wanted people to come in most days. Mm -hmm. um, Post-COVID, we, we, we realized, actually, like, like many people, we realized the company can be run with people remotely. It was tough in the early days. We had to adapt many things, but we, we realized we could be very productive. So now we have employees on the east coast of Canada, on the west coast of Canada, uh, and everywhere in between. Most still happen to be broadly GTA and GTA adjacent, uh, but we do have employees all over the country now. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm used to that sort of environment. Uh, uh, <laughs> I've gone all the way from uh, here uh, to New Zealand and, and mm -hmm. people all in between. So I get up in the morning, okay. somebody I report to in New Zealand is literally headed off to bed. So I've right. got to wait until my evening to, to chat with them. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, you know, the people in Europe, they're already, you know, they're about to wrap up their day and go home and we're trying to squeeze in meetings uh, at some crazy time that everybody can kind of just deal with right. <laughs> as opposed to like, yeah, that's a great time of day to have to have that meeting. Thankfully, five time zones, not, you know, that five, maybe five and a half uh, is not that difficult to deal with. But uh, do you have like some of that collaboration happening from coast to coast or is it mostly like Toronto centric still since since you're in Toronto, HQ is in Toronto? Right. Um, we take advantage of the fact that we have people in different time zones. Um, 
we've got customers all over Canada. And so mm -hmm. those that are more customer facing, we try and match their hours with the customers in their part of the country. So we, we, we actually had always thought about trying to get shift work to service different hours. Mm -hmm. Now it's very natural. We have people in different parts of the country. We try and match their hours to their customers. Uh, the Global Insurance Centre is London, uh, so we deal a lot with uh, London, UK. Okay. And we try and also take advantage of the various time zones to see are certain people better suited to dealing with London versus not. The challenge is um, anyone in BC working with someone in London. The time zone is so different that when they wake up, London is shutting down. So that, that's yeah. the one thing that's hard to manage. We have explored people uh, in South America, employees on, on the engineering front. We looked okay. at it, the time zone is great because it's either one or two hours different. It's not that, uh, depending on where you are. Uh, yeah. So we're open to it. We haven't actually done it yet, but we are very open to it. Um, you said you had to adapt some of your processes, maybe your technology, uh, you know, when people started working from home more often, uh, if they were already working from home since then, and obviously you've expanded across the country now, what sorts of things were, you know, maybe the biggest changes, like were these, were these IT changes where you need to start installing, uh, you know, your own VPN hardware, or was this, you know, moving from on-premise software that you had internally to, to you know, cloud-based software, whatever you want to call it, like what, what were the biggest changes sure. there? There was a, a mindset or a, there was a real realization for me that the insurance industry is even more backward than I thought. Uh, <laughs> when I got my first job, I got a Blackberry and I got a laptop and off I, off I went. Nice. Only when the pandemic hit that I realized most insurance shops still worked off of desktops mm -hmm. and uh, the, the old desk phone. And so we were fortunate, it was all laptops, everyone has a laptop, everything's in the cloud, there's nothing on premises. So on a Friday, we told everybody, take your stuff home, you're working from home next week. Technologically, that was it. Uh, all soft phone, everything in the cloud, no issues technologically. What okay. we had to really adapt was, um, how do people keep communicating? Yes, we had Slack, but how do you make sure people are actually talking? Um, so we had to introduce new touch points, we did virtual, workouts, virtual yoga, bingo, trivia nights, uh, town halls, lots of uh, pre-organized connections. We've done virtual, what do you call those, escape rooms for people. Cool. Uh, we now have someone dedicated to, all she does is manage culture and remote events, team by team. She'll go across, she has a budget, every team gets uh, a, a virtual event every so often, they have a budget. We, we used Uber Eats gift cards for everybody to go and, and have lunch together virtually in their teams. Um, a much more defined onboarding process to the point where you join, it was actually a bit stressful because they got 50 calendar invites to have a coffee chat here, a lunch chat there, a virtual session here, a town hall there. We just pre-schedule three months worth of stuff so you don't have to think about it. You just follow your calendar and you've now met everyone in the company. Um, I've also just recently started a thing because we went from 50 employees to something like 130 in the last year. And I look at names and I say, who is this person? They're in my company, but I don't know who they are. Uh, are they yeah. a real person? So <laughs> I'm going through this exercise over the next three weeks, all people managers, I'm getting a one-on-one -on -one coffee chat with them, 30 minutes each. So that's 25 or 30 people. And then the following three weeks, one level down, and then the following week, three weeks I want to try and cover everybody in the company. 
Uh, so over the next three months, I want to meet everyone again, just to have that connection with uh, with people. Um, yeah. So those are the types of things we've had to put in place to make sure people are connected, they're learning, they're excited, they're motivated. Um, we have a, a course set up with UFT. All of our people managers will do people leadership training at UFT. Uh, with, with an aspect of that is remote leadership. So uh, just training our people as well. That sounds like a great course. I'm gonna have to go look it up. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's one I could definitely use. Uh, one last question for you. Uh, you know, around halfway through the conversation, you were talking about how um, other insurance companies here in Canada are, are you know, willing to take less risk, or at least it seems like they're willing to take less risk than your, uh, than similar American companies, uh, you know, uh, and, and even to the extent that um, your American peers who are doing similar things to insurance had, I guess, an easier time fundraising. What, like, what is that process actually like? I think most people don't actually have a clue. I've, I've got, you know, uh, an, an arm's length view at that process every once in a while, but even for myself, I've never pitched a business to somebody who, who will hopefully, you know, cut me a check for a couple million dollars and let me, you know, run and, and, and start developing things. What is that process actually like? Sure. I'd first start by saying there's a lot of luck involved. There's timing, there's serendipity. Our big investor, um, in our early days when we wanted to have a business relationship with them, we didn't get that far just talking through on the insurance side, uh, good conversation, but we didn't get too far. And then it just so happened that a friend of mine moved from one insurance company to this company. They were hosting an internal event. They asked me to come present and initially I said, well, I don't know if I want to because our <laughs> business discussions didn't go anywhere. And, but he convinced me, I went, we talked, we had a panel discussion and a few weeks later they called me saying, hey, we're interested in investing. And it was just absolute uh, serendipity that I happened to be there, even though initially I, I, I may not have wanted to, but they had the conversation. I met all of the, the senior management and I just really liked the people I, I interacted with and all the way to the top, had lots of great conversations. I probably met 50 people during that process. It took nine months, but at the end of it, um, I was only looking for half a million uh, to round out our seed extension round. But at the end of it, they cut us a check for much more than 10 times that. Hmm. Uh, and, and it just came to a point where I really wanted to work with them. We had a great conversations and there was a lot of trust. So that was a luck. Uh, I, I would say there was a lot of luck in that. I think there's a few types of investors that I came across that I'd say you want to really watch out for. And there's a few types that uh, you want to seek. Let me start with the positive ones, the ones you want to seek. Uh, you want to make sure you're working with people that believe in your vision and are investing because they want you to be the one running the business and, and uh, not them behind the scenes controlling it. Right. That's really important that, that that understanding is there. Uh, yes, it does help that if that investor comes from a brand name shop because it's a signaling impact to others, but I think equally if not more important is the actual individual themselves. Is that somebody you can call in the middle of the night when you're in a panic and something's going wrong and they're going to sit down with you and help you solve the problem? You don't want someone that's going to point fingers and you know just, just blame you for everything, but they're going to solve the problems for you. So right. th those are two things that I particularly look for. I, when I hire employees, I look for people that are strong opinioned but also humble, and I like that in the investors too. Um, so 
we're going to learn from each other. The ones that I came across that I wasn't a huge fan of, um, uh, one, one profile in particular, this, this would be someone that either they're a doctor, a lawyer, or somebody that made a whole bunch of money and now they just mm -hmm. want to cut checks and they think they're a venture capitalist because they have a couple million dollars in the bank account. You, you right. really don't want that because they don't know what they're doing and they're going to possibly cause a headache. Um, and sometimes it's the same profile, sometimes it's a little related. It's, it's a overly banker type person where they're so focused on the financials and how profitable are you going to be, show me your model, let's go to the, the 15th tab on the third cell and tell me what that number means. <laughs> the only thing that both sides should realize is that the model is wrong. No matter what it is, the model is wrong. Right. Uh, so you want someone that is there for the vision, they're willing to take the risk. Uh, and and know that whatever the model says, it's wrong, so why spend so much time on it? You want to put through the thinking, you want to make sure you have thought through the process, but just work on, on moving forward and adapt as you go. And I spoke to 60, 70, 80 investors over time. Wow. The best was when it was a flat, firm, early no. Uh, I, I, I much prefer that to the maybe, but unfortunately most investors will say maybe. So you want to quickly get to an answer, a yes or a no. Most will be no, 80-90% uh, will be a no. Get those out of the way. Find the few that you want to work with. I had a monthly email that I sent to all of those that I'd like to work with in our early days. Sent updates on the numbers, the progress, the statistics, had quarterly meetings. And then when I was ready to raise, the frustrating thing, which I think many founders will say and agree with is nobody very few people wanted to be the first one to say yes. Mm. Many would say, I'm interested, but who else do you have? So you need some sort of a forcing mechanism to say, this is the date, these are the terms, who's in? It's a little bit risky because if you don't have firm terms and a firm date, you don't want to be bluffing, but you want to try and have some sort of a forcing mechanism to have people join and get the round closed with yeah. those people that you're interested in working with. So there's a, there's a science behind how do you manage investors, how do you triage them, how do you get to the subset that you're excited about and then forcing the close at the end. Uh, and as soon as that closes, don't celebrate because you're starting to fundraise for your next round the very next day. So it's a never-ending cycle. Sounds like campaigning for uh, for a Congress seat in the U.S. You just won, and then you just start That's fundraising right. for the next race because it's in two years. It never ends. It never ends. As a founder, you have to enjoy the fundraising aspect of it, or you have to tell yourself you enjoy it because it's never ending. I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not building any tech. I, you know, I run a services-based yeah. business, but I, I've been incredibly fortunate to have just kind of jumped in with a client. A little over three years ago now and everything was fine it is a one-man show and um, another opportunity just kind of happened and then I had two clients and right. then you know COVID hit and oh my god things just took off like it was it was absolutely nuts and I don't know why it was you know complete correlation it's definitely not causation but um, yeah it's it's yeah I'm again it, that's that's worked great for me Obviously, you know, very few people are have an ability to just spend a couple hundred thousand dollars hiring other people to help build something as 
potentially complicated as insurance or or you know a clubhouse or something like that where there's all sorts of stuff in the background that just kind of works and you don't see nice. it and yet you know like you you talked about you know trying to eliminate bias from from machine learning models and and actually do, you know applying an ai like the person hours that go into you know actually building that up and testing it and all mm -hmm. that nobody gets to see and so you know so everything true. looks like an overnight success story <laughs> until, <Yes. laughs> until you get Denise on Canadian Tech Podcast and yeah. uh, and really have him you know explain even just a very small part of of that process of building a business and, and getting money right. to, to hire more people get more resources give yourself more runway uh, and more time to to keep building um, That's so true you can look at our website and Many people critique us, uh, incumbents will critique us and say, oh, it's just a fancy website. And then sometimes you'll have people that pop up with, with a very nice looking website. And I say, great, if that's all you want to copy, go for it, because that's only what you see on our website is 5% of the effort. Yeah. There's 95% of my sleepless nights, not just mine, all of our management, the effort, the dollars that go into this, 95% of it just works behind the scenes and it makes the website look simple but there's so much behind the scenes. Yeah, no, I, th I can appreciate that. And, and hopefully as more people listen to, to conversations like this, they'll start to appreciate that too. I want to end off on, on uh, this question here, if you don't mind. Um, your, that, that fundraising story of you, you know, doing that presentation for that insurance company, they shall remain nameless, that's perfectly fine. Um, I'm curious, did, did you get a sense from them of this was something they wanted to do and maybe just couldn't justify doing it themselves? Or was it just like, nobody at the company had ever thought to do this before. And here's this guy who's already like halfway there. We can just pump a little bit of money into his idea and benefit from it, uh, you know, probably being a, a policy um, um, seller, you know, you're selling their, their policies as well uh, through the platform. Like, did you get a sense of why they hadn't done it themselves or, or why they saw this opportunity through through UN's insurance as like, we got to do this? Yeah. So I'll be the first to say what we're doing is not very novel, right? Selling stuff online has been around <laughs> since the 90s. Right? Pets.com was selling stuff online in the late 90s. Yeah. It's it's the application of it to insurance and everything that goes behind it is is the part that's difficult. And so it's definitely not the case that they didn't think about it. Uh, they definitely thought about it. In fact, they had acquired outright a company like ours, but in the UK uh, mm. a year or two prior. So they, they knew the model and they understood it. They could very well have taken that company, brought it to Canada and done it themselves um, because they had that expertise. I think what was interesting here was just the connection we had. They saw the passion that I had to make this succeed. Uh, we had prog progressed in, we were only two years old at the time. We had progressed, we had insurance company contracts, we had traction customers, we had a brand. So it was just the ability to uh, speed things up rather than okay. starting from scratch. Uh, and for a big company, what's a few million dollars, right? It's, it's not yeah. a big deal. Uh, if it means gaining two years, that's worth a lot more. Um, and and if, if you get a strong team, and we were only 10 people at the time, a strong motivated team it's worth quite a bit yeah well i mean i say that <laughs> i say that being one of the people that i'm saying was worth <laughs> quite a bit i realized that <laughs> i was gonna say if you think you've got the 10 best people working on it already i mean 
theoretically they could have gone for an aqua hire right and, and done kind of right. the same thing like we're going to acquire zenshurance and make it part of right. i'm th just throwing names out there make it part of rbc or whatever or, right. or te uh or or manulife <laughs> or what have you but uh you know it's probably the the thing you mentioned earlier of like we believe in this founder we think he's the right guy to to take this across the finish line whatever that looks like and right. um and obviously you know hand you the money with all sorts of terms of course yes. uh and and have you keep building the thing that you're building as opposed to uh applying the uk brand having to form all these relationships themselves uh uh you know to bring it over to canada because highly regulated industry, very little crossover unless you're an underwriter of all the underwriters like Munich right. Re or something like that. And um, yeah, no, that's terrific. That's that's an amazing story. Um, Danish, I, I think we're I think we're really good here. Uh, thanks so much for your time uh, on this afternoon. Uh, and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you can stay safe and, and ideally stay somewhat free uh, during this time period that we're just about to head back into. Um, yeah, thanks so much yeah. for your time uh, for uh, and for spending some time with us here on Canadian Tech Podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Canadian Tech Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, or like the video and subscribe to the YouTube channel. We'll see you back here in two weeks. In the meantime, have fun. <laughs>